Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode highlights ideas around rethinking the way cities are evolving. We discuss planning, design, technology, development, and other fields that contribute to the urban experience. What they'll do is they'll they'll hire or they'll take drone footage and show construction as it goes. In addition to that, they'll slap a camera on a pole so now anybody that goes to their website can see the actual live footage of the building being built. Mm-hmm. So another great way to show the community, here's what we got. You can now see it's a real building. We're not saying we're going to build it. You can see the construction live <laughs> as it's going up. On this episode, I'm speaking with George Kutro and Chad Book, co-leaders of the Chicago Industrial Research Platform for JLL. Based in the company's global headquarters, they track the largest industrial market in the United States at 1.2 billion square feet and work with a team of about 40 producers, which is JLL's largest industrial brokerage team in the country. Their research is utilized daily for a variety of unique and complex industrial transactions from tenant representation, dispositions, build to suits, and investment sales. Chad and George are also involved with market assessments using labor analytics in GIS mapping and produce innovative white papers on industry trends. A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please share this track and others on your social accounts to people you think would be interested. Also, please rate it on iTunes or other platforms where you listen. This is how we grow and it's much appreciated. This podcast is driven by authentic form and function. We're a design and technology studio working on tools and platforms to improve the urban space. You can find out more online at authenticff.com. And finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas of who else we should speak with to podcast at authenticff.com. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. So George and Chad, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Thanks very much. So let's start with how you both found your way into this commercial real estate world. And and Chad, how about we start with you? Sure. So I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, and um, have a few family members, including my dad, that have worked in real estate for their entire careers. So I have always been kind of interested in building and construction and that sort of thing. I got my undergrad. Uh, when I was an undergrad, I got my North Carolina real estate broker's license. Just as thought it'd be something interesting and uh, good to have in my back pocket. Uh, I later went to graduate school at East Carolina. That was uh, during 2010, kind of in the bottom of the recession. So I was studying urban planning and kind of always had an interest in real estate and development. You know, not the best time to be getting a job in real estate and development. <laughs> not a lot happening at that point, but obviously we're at a, we're at a really good part of the market right now. But after grad school, I started interning for JLL in their Raleigh office, which was really kind of just primarily office tenant reps and pretty small office there, but was on the research team and doing our quarterly market reports, market surveys, white papers, very similar to what I do now, but obviously a different market, much more uh, exposure and the Chicago market size is way bigger, and, and this is obviously our, our largest industrial brokerage team at JLL in the country. So we have a really robust team and really robust market here, and we actually do a good bit of national tenant rep work out of this office. So we kind of parachute into other markets and are tracking some of the 
higher level national trends around the country for JLO. Yeah, right. And let's back up a little bit. So you were back in school, you got your your real estate license. Is that is that a common thing to to see? You know, it, it's probably pretty rare. It's, it's offered, no, it is rare. <laughs> not offered through the university. It's through a private real estate school, and I was probably one of the youngest people in the class. But was glad to have done it because it really kind of opened my door to the real estate world. And you know, that's kind of a, a prerequisite course. And so I could have immediately left school and started selling houses on the side if I had wanted to. But I was always more interested in the commercial real estate side and. Obviously, industrial is very exciting. Yeah. Let, so let's pause for a moment and pivot over to George. You know, George, you've been in the industry for quite a few years now, and I want to know where did it start for you, and and where did your background get get rolling? Well, thanks. Now, unlike Chad, I am born and raised in the Chicagoland area, Northwest suburbs. My dad, like Chad, was in the real estate industry, but he was a residential broker. And back in that day, there was no computers. And one of the things I learned from him, or actually he was allowing me to do, was help him peruse through his listing sheets of all the available houses that were for sale and pulling out all the ones that were sold. And then any add any new ones to, uh, he called his black book that needed to be updated. So back around 12, 13 years old, I got my first for away into the residential real estate world. I, I like doing it, which I think for what I do now, database management, it's, it's, it's a manual thing still. I like doing that. And uh, that's where I got, I cut my teeth. I graduated from Lewis University with a marketing degree. And like Chad, when I graduated, the market was tough to find jobs. So I interned for a market research firm for a year. During the same time period, I got, I got engaged and was saying, this is not enough to support a family. I answered, answered a blind ad and, and got into the real estate, commercial real estate industry through that blind ad. And I've been doing it ever since now going on 31 years. Wow. So I this is something that's always fascinating to me, which is this idea of two stories converging and coming together at a certain point in time. And the two of you have worked together for a few years now. And 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 the reason why this is fascinating to me in retrospect is, you know, for example, George, you've been in the industry for 30 plus years now. What were you doing in the industry when Chad was in middle school or high school and kind of coming up through his his younger ranks? And then your two worlds eventually would collide and converge and you're working together now. As I understand it, this actually happened at a local meetup group. Is is that the way the story goes? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Myself and a couple other colleagues from competitive firms were trying to find a way to exchange information more readily. And my thought was, let's meet as a group to share ideas and to help each other because we're all doing the same thing just at different shops. But let's help each other be more collaborative with information. So we had to do less data collecting and more sifting through the data, it made our jobs more efficient. So about 15, maybe 20 years ago, we created what was called the Chicago Industrial Research Council. And we met a couple times a year. Couple of big things that we we really came out of the out of this meeting was we were able to come up with some standards for collecting data that we all shared. The biggest thing that we pushed to each other on a monthly basis is an exclusive list. Chad is the man from our office who maintains that and, and sends it out to this group. But back then, 
everybody had had it in an Excel spreadsheet, but the data was was in different spots. They weren't all showing the same types of data. So from this group, we were able to formulate the data. And then the, the best key here was if there was any new additions or any changes to highlight those on the spreadsheet so it made all of our jobs easier when we're looking for changes hmm. within that group. The other big thing that came out of that was a comp sharing program that we also feed to each other on, on comps that we're allowed to share to the group. Again, mixing our life a lot easier for collecting data. Yeah. So what what type of data for the layperson who's listening to the to the podcast today? What what types of data are you discussing, collecting, making easier to to access? Like could you wrap that up and and, and give us a kind of a nugget of what that looks like? Oh, sure. So for instance, you know, from the availability side, the most important features are where it's located, so your address location, the size of the asset, and the pricing of the asset. And then maybe a couple salient property features. The most important features, and Jay, correct me if I'm wrong, are clear height, how many docks the building has, how many drive-in doors the building has, how much office is in that unit or building, and then lastly, power. And then on top of that, you have your pricing components. If it's for sale, what's the sale price? If it's for lease, what the lease price is? And then if you know what the taxes are, those are all key components that when people are looking for properties, they're going to want to know those aspects so they can make a determination whether they want to use submit their property to a, a client or not. And Chris, we're tracking all this information in our proprietary uh, software called MarketSphere. It's our, our property database, and you know the industrial market is it's very nuanced. So we're tracking a lot of different uh, types of spaces, including cold storage, truck terminals, uh, crane manufacturing buildings, um, <clears throat> as well as we're really tracking a lot of other market information as far as little scoops and tidbits on. Hey, this is coming to sale as part of our portfolio, or hey, you know, we're getting a note from one of our brokers that this tenant's about to renew, or you know, we're tracking a variety of different data points that are, in many cases, yeah, non-public and they're exchanged mm-hmm. uh, party to party and and amongst the brokerage community that are really valuable data points to to our clients. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so, George, when you two met in the research council world, I'll call it. About what year was that? That was about five years ago. Wow. So is that when you both started working together or did you meet each other before you started working together? No. First time I met him was at a research council meeting. And then from there, a couple of years later, I ended up joining his firm. And he's taught me everything ever since on how to be a great research guy. Yeah, you know, I hired him. He was just he was out looking for a job, and <laughs> we brought him over down on his luck. And, <laughs> and I still I owe Chad a lot for the career he's helped me really push forward today. So this is a great segue. I want to know more about this symbiotic relationship that you two have. You have your own podcast. Feel free to to mention that and plug that. You guys are 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 high energy, funny. There's a lot of lot of laughs in your conversations and. I'd love to start with you, Chad, and, and learn more about your your role in that relationship. Sure. So we actually function as part of a three-person team fully dedicated to uh, the industrial market here in Chicago. And we have about 40 brokers in this office, including guys who do investment sales. So this is, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, JLL's largest national 
industrial real estate brokerage team in the country. So we support the the Chicago market, which is about 16,000 buildings, 1.2 billion square feet. And our primary responsibility for research is our quarterly market report. We like to think that we have the most robust and comprehensive market report covering 20 submarkets. Don't you? And we do. And uh, it's a great piece. It is. It's available on our website, and and uh, we're happy to share that with you. But that's it's really valuable insight on a quarterly basis. But the rest of our time is really direct support to all the transactions that we are doing, as well as we help out with business development. We do. Uh, we work with our property marketing teams, and we also get out, have a little bit of fun, tour some buildings, do some open houses, and and are meeting with clients and talking to clients very frequently. And talk to me a little bit about JLL's proprietary GIS platform, which you mentioned to me in a previous conversation, but I think it's called Blackbird. Is that right? Yeah, correct. So Blackbird's a great tool. It is a geospatial tool that is integrated with MarketSphere, our uh, JLL property database, uh, which shows availabilities, property information. And we overlay that with a really a ton of different variables from labor and demographics that we do heat mapping with, we do drive time analysis, we do uh, simple property surveys looking for available spaces. We are tracking a lot of different amenity data to railroad data to public transit accessibility. And it's, it's really a great tool for virtual market presentations. For example, we are working with a client based in Chicago, a longtime client that is starting a new project and they're looking at five other markets around the country. So, you know, before we go get on the private jet with this client, we're doing the market tour in their office tomorrow, looking at Atlanta, Dallas, and Nashville. We have their size requirement. We have loaded in some available properties that we are going to go, you know, fly the market virtually, Blackbird, go look at these, and we're going to let the client kind of whittle down which ones look best, mm-hmm. which ones are available now, which ones will kind of lay out best for their process. Uh, which ones can be upgraded with office space, that sort of thing, as well as which ones appear to be in a good labor market and are close to highways. So those are some of the the main variables that we're looking at with this client tomorrow. And uh, we're hopefully going to whittle down this this, uh, tour list to a more manageable order, and then we will go out and physically tour the building. So that's one of the the most logical applications that we do with industrial, because these buildings are so big and so far apart. And the client's always have a very unique need for their, their either distribution or manufacturing use. So that's uh, it's a great way to kind of virtually tour the buildings. Yeah. So Chad, your more visualization of the data, it sounds like being proactive in those strategies and, and talking clients through those, those options and those decisions. And George, you alluded to this earlier, but please take it away. It sounds like data collection is a huge emphasis in your role. Oh, that's correct. And that's, that's my strong suit. I'm good at primary collecting of data. I've been doing this since day one. And, and basically, I've been doing the same operations since day one, which is taking the population and then re-verifying vacancies over a quarterly time period. And then from that information, you're going to get a couple different pieces that you can then put analysis to, whether they trade or they're still available. If they trade, you get all the economic information from that buyer, seller, tenant, landlord, what it's sold for. What are the economic terms in the lease? And then from there, we can then feed it to our database. So on a quarterly basis, we can now interpret, say, okay, here's here's what's happening. Here's what's leasing. Here's the size range of leasing. Here's the markets that are hot. Here's the markets that are 
you know, not doing so well. And we can also break it down, Chad mentioned earlier, by product type, whether it's warehouse manufacturing or any sub product type. And then we look at into helping with the capital markets group, you know, where where are these investment buildings trading hands and what cap rates. So now we can tell a really rich story from the primary data that we're collecting and not relying on a third party vendor for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love this. And we're we're starting to get into the weeds a little bit. And I'm admittedly not that well versed in this. So I'm excited to have this conversation today and jumping into some of our main talking points, which are, you know, really focused around the industrial CRE space and and more specifically what it means when we think about the warehouses of the future or industrial warehouses of the future. So as we as we get deeper into that expertise that you both bring to the table, talk to me about and set the stage for the biggest changes you've been seeing in this industry over the, the last 5, 10, 20 years. I'll start, George. I think the biggest thing with warehouse, the change in warehouses is the size and the technology within the building. You know, we've gone from, you know, call it 20 years ago, 150,000 square foot building was the largest building being developed on a speculative basis to now it's it's not uncommon to see a developer build a, a million square foot speculative building for the next e-commerce or large 3PL warehouser looking for that size space because that's what that's where some of the demand is running from. Mm-hmm. And then with inside the buildings, you're looking at a couple different things. Your you know, power is definitely a strong, a big thing to have. You know, typically in some of the spec buildings of the past, thousand to two thousand amps of power were the norm. Now, because of conveyor systems and IT technology, you need abundantly more power. So you're looking at five to ten thousand amps. A power being brought to these speculative buildings now because of those demands for that space. The floors on the buildings are a lot thicker. You know, typically a floor in a smaller building is six inches. Now you're looking to seven to ten inches for warehouse space, and that also depends on whether you're going to mezzanine the building. Like some of the three commerce folks out there, they mezzanine their buildings, you know, which takes a million square foot footprint. And now turns into three million square feet because it's it's three stories. You need to have a floor to support that additional weight. Mm-hmm. So that you're, you're seeing that. The other important feature, especially for these fulfillment centers, we have physical a lot of bodies collecting pieces to package them to be sent out on a truck. So you have a huge parking requirement now. Also, in addition to that, since you're you've got these bigger buildings, you have a lot more dock trucks coming through, and with those trucks, you need to storm somewhere. So you see the the trucks courts or the truck yards being a lot bigger, where they store these trailers to accommodate that. And then, in addition to that, Chad, what do you think? What yeah. else we can say to those buildings? Yeah. These buildings have air conditioning. They have uh, more amenities. There's more sensors. There's heavy-duty wireless infrastructure in there. People are running around with handheld scanners, collecting a lot of data as soon as packages come in the door and when they go back out. And that requires a really robust IT infrastructure as well as increasingly a lot more automation, whether that's package sorters, material handling infrastructure, spiral sorters, and things like that to direct products in and out of the buildings. There's 
automated storage and retrieval systems, which are moving pallets up and down and, and fully kind of dark facilities. So it, these buildings are getting increasingly more complex and, and expensive. And the unique thing about that is with those type of buildings, the inside of the building costs more than the outside of the building. Right. So you're putting more money in the infrastructure than you are on the shell. Yeah. Another thing that, that I believe is is occurring is, and forgive me if this isn't the, the correct industry term, but I, th- I think it's something like hub and spokes where you have these sort of different rings of industrial warehouses and and it has that changed over the years or or how would you how would you discuss that or how would you explain that yeah i think that has changed in many you know kind of manufacturing and distribution models of the past there was a couple manufacturing centers and then product was produced there and sent out maybe to you know two or three National or regional distribution centers, a typical model would be one in New Jersey or Pennsylvania and one in California on the West Coast and maybe another in the middle of the country like mm-hmm. like a Chicago or St. Louis. And and you shipped an order and it got there on a truck in like you know a week or two weeks. And that was the normal, logically accepted uh, delivery service time. Obviously, there's, there's other companies out there that are uh, delivering in, in two days or 24 hours. And and so that has really changed the distribution model. And so the the boiled down version of that is more distribution nodes in more places for faster service. You can't just put one big warehouse in the middle of the country and expect to service everyone. And in two weeks, you need to be faster. Your customers are demanding it. So that has been a fundamental shift in the business. And again, Chris, this is this is really stemming from E-commerce. E-commerce has changed the supply chain cycle mm-hmm. and how things are moved. Because you know what what was in Chan mentioned this earlier. What was typically the standard of okay, five days is okay to wait for a shipment. Maybe five years ago, today you're getting it within a couple hours. And in order to feed that beast, you need to have more distribution centers, and you, you get them from larger down to smaller, and the smaller distribution centers. You know, typically from 20 to 50,000 square feet are in the located in the highly dense populations where the, where these goods are being sold to. Right. And and would you say that e-commerce is the main driver of these industrial changes, or are there other industries or other you know niches that are pushing this forward as well? Well, they're the main niche for that. But but call it 15 years ago. There was another term in the industry called just-in-time delivery, which is sprout on by the manufacturing group. As more manufacturers were getting rid of their excess warehouse space and turned it into production, they didn't want to warehouse the stuff anymore. They were requiring distributors of those parts they were using for the final product to bring them the goods as they needed it. So that freed them up to not have to keep that stuff in their buildings. And these, you know, other manufacturers and or, or their warehousers were now responsible to get those those parts when they wanted them. So mm-hmm. that's sort of the first wave of this. And then e-commerce, because that's and it's a business to business cycle. With e-commerce, it's a business to person. And right. so it's, so you have a lot more people that you're catering to. So hence you need to have more locations to be able to deliver the products 
in the, in the amount of time they're delivering them to, yeah. some in a couple hours. And the, so, and the locations matter a lot because you mentioned to me this idea of a, of a buy market quandary in that, you know, the way that the the lay of the land uh, per se in Chicago isn't necessarily um, the lay of the land in New York City. I guess let's start with you, George. Can you explain to the listeners what's happening, um, where, and kind of why there are those differences? Oh, sure. You, Chicago is unique because it's it's a it's a flat surface. I mean, New York is flat as well. You don't have this in, in the city of New York. That is, your topography is not an issue. However, the price of land in New York is is such a premium that in order to build an industrial facility where the population is, you have to go up. So you're going to put buildings, you're going to build buildings that are multi-story in nature because of the cost of the real estate. And the last time that it happened was back in the 1900s when we had the Industrial Revolution come through. Again, at that period of time, we we weren't as spread out as we were as we are now. So you had a lot of people again going up with their facilities, multi-storing them to be close to the population node where their workers were. And then once the urban sprawl happened in called the 60s and 70s, you saw that they had exodus of building buildings multi-story and moving out to more rural but still close in areas that had the land available to build single-story industrial structures. So now we're reverting back to that, you know, these population nodes are very dense and they want to get back into those nodes. And the only way to build in some of these markets is to go up. Another example of that is in Washington, where they're where they're building multi-story uh, warehouses, again, for the e-commerce community. And that's the only way they can do it because it's, it's too costly to to try to assemble enough land to build a single story structure. Mm-hmm. And, and what are those, uh, and Chad, feel free to jump in here. What do those more dense urban areas, uh, what, what do their industrial buildings end up looking like? I'm, I'm hearing multiple floors, maybe some modifications to how those those delivery processes actually play out or, or how would you describe that? Yeah, for example, in a place like Prologis's Seattle warehouse. Uh, this is a, a new new to market type of project. So the ramps and loading uh, are incredibly unique. This is not just you, know, you drive your truck, you come in, and there's a ramp to take you to a second level. Which you know maybe if you look at one of these buildings, there may be one portion of the building that's better dedicated for putting 53 foot trailers in, which is kind of the new domestic standard, whereas another portion or level of the building may be better suited for smaller box trucks or vans. So these buildings are are, are meant to be a multi-tenant scenario. And maybe even another level will be, you know, just better for for just pure parking and and pure or manufacturing assembly because uh, the human workforce can get in there via elevators or steps or whatever. So the buildings itself are going to be much more expensive. Uh, ramps and truck courts are going to look a lot different. These are not your typical kind of cross docks with 190 foot truck courts. Mm-hmm. They're just going to look a little bit different and much taller. So the typical distribution building today is built to about anywhere from 32 to 36, maybe even 40 foot clear. These buildings are essentially three times that. So the peak of the roof is 
hundred mm-hmm. something feet. And how how often are you seeing in these industrial buildings being new builds versus being readapted or, or modified over time? Well, the building I just referenced is, is brand new, one of a kind. There's really just one in the West Coast and maybe two coming out of the ground in the New York City area. In many of these old old cities, uh, Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia, there's definitely a, a big stock of multi-story industrial buildings, call it plus or minus 100,000 or 100 years old, masonry, brick and timber. Uh, they do not have the big truck courts and the loading capabilities for today's modern users. So in many of these markets, these buildings are just excellent redevelopment candidates for loft offices or multifamily housing. And so a lot of that inventory has just been taken out of the market. They're not, uh, they've been converted, they're off the table. But what's left, you know, some of these are just not really efficient for modern distribution. You may have one or two freight elevators in there. And if you're sending out a package of, of parcels every day, the loading is uh, getting stuff in and out is kind of inefficient. So those those buildings have largely just been used for dead storage or maybe a small distribution use, but not not something that's highly efficient like we think of with a modern e-commerce operation. But those buildings still have a valuable purpose. They're you know well constructed and well located, but maybe you're just doing some kind of traditional distribution off of a lower floor if it's a if it's a five story building and maybe the upper floors are are more dead storage or maybe even converted. Mm. And just to echo on some of that, Chris, just yeah. to give your readers a better understanding of the difference between the two buildings. First, the older vintage buildings, how they service the floors was through freight elevators. So these freight elevators were had the ability to take very heavy items, you know, from floor to floor. Versus the modern buildings today, they're bringing each floor. And I think in the one in Washington, they have the ability to service multiple floors with docks. So they're not putting in an elevator bank to move the goods up and down. They're either bringing the docks to the levels or it's a conveyor system where they're moving the goods from floor to floor on a conveyor system. The other thing, looking at the older stock of buildings, those were great for the for the time period and then after a while when that use became you know outdated a lot of those buildings were converted like chad mentioned to other uses but a lot of them stayed in the industrial realm but they were really incubator type buildings where someone who was working with his in his garage on a project needed more space he would move into these buildings because he was these would be a great cheap alternative to to go and try find single story space in the city. Yeah. But once those guys grew out of that space and they moved into something single story, well, that was a great entree for them to really start and expand their business. Do do the newer buildings, the the technology there, do, do those have a specific name? Is that a is that a specific building name that's been coined or is that just a, you know, architectural and build style? Well, we kind of think of the market as as a what we call a class A building is more maybe built in the last 15 years or so, it's, it's usually a minimum of a 30 foot clear ceiling height. And by and large, that is built with precast concrete. That is kind of the more modern institutional grade type asset. And, and that's really the market that we typically play in, class A, class B for the distribution space. But it's really kind of driven by the, the kind of 
premium investor market. They really focus on that type of asset. Those are the life insurance companies, the pension funds, the big private equity firms. That's kind of the asset class that has been has been driving. Uh, but she had books of the world by the on a personal basis. <laughs> So guys, let's shift gears a bit into how these buildings are being positioned or, or marketed. And, and what have you found as being the biggest themes for how these are being discussed and sold? Um, and that, that could be from the brokers to the buyers to the public at large. Obviously, I'm a representative of the public at large, and I'm learning a lot today. George, let's start with you. Talk to me about how these, these properties and, and the marketing around them have, has changed. There's two, there's really two issues that have changed through my lifetime. Uh, the first one and the most important one is demographics of the area. And now with the, with the, the unemployment rated, you know, historic lows, companies now when they're making this decision on real estate needs, the number one thing they're asking brokers today is, if I move here, will I have labor to be able to support my business? So you'll see a lot of people who are marketing buildings will show on the marketing brochure a radius of where the labor is at and, and, and kind of color coded so people when they see that they know that there is labor that they can maintain. The other thing I, I noticed more now, and this used to be an office trick that now has trickled over to the industrial side is they're showing where the amenities are. Another thing to keep the employees at your company is making sure you're you're nearby amenities. You know, grocery stores, restaurants, so if someone wants to go out at lunch and pick up something, they now know they can because they're in an area that will support that type of need for their employees. So they're also looking for that as well. And those are the two biggest things I've seen being added to the marketing schemes on today's industrial properties. Yeah. Yeah. Chad, what about you? Well, on the property marketing side, we're using some great technology because largely everything is marketed via the web and via the broker broker to broker community you know we always put a sign on the building but the odds of you getting a legitimate prospect off of a sign call are sometimes you know slim but um you know one of the, the best things that we're doing is using the matterport camera which is a 3d movable camera that you can be positioning in a couple different corners of the building and when we make a custom branded web page for any of our marquee listings we're embedding that footage into these websites so you can send the brochure and a link to the website to a prospect and they can virtually tour the building without getting in their car and going to see it so yeah. you know, a great example of that is we'll put a camera right inside the front front door right by the lobby or the entrance, get a quick view of the layout in the office and the conference room layout. We'll get a second photo area of the middle of the warehouse. You'll do a 360 degree view, see how the docks and the column spacing lays out. You'll be able to look up and see the ceiling height and say, okay, this is the inside of the box looks good to me. And then we'll put another camera kind of on the outside, maybe around the loading docks, just so you get a good view of, of the truck cord and the, and the docks and the so kind of access. So this is like a virtual tour. A virtual right, market right, tour, right. do it all from your computer. And then, uh, yeah, it really saves a lot of time if you're doing a, a market survey and, and it helps get, it's, it's just more attractive marketing. It makes your project more attractive if somebody can see it. Right. Yeah, I, I'm I'm in agreement. I'm nodding my head over here. It's uh, the Matterport is is a great tool, and it's a it's a tool that our team has started leveraging as well. And being able to put 
prospective buyers and, and customers in the space without them necessarily needing to be in the same city or in the same location or, or room with you is, is a huge bonus. And especially now with the, the transition to so much mobile traffic and people being on their phones all the time, being able to, to see a shot of that atrium, uh, as you alluded to, on their phone and kind of look around is, is a huge key to, I think, marketing. Um, and it sounds like that's trickling into industrial as well. Yeah, absolutely. And at JLL, a lot of our client base is, is kind of corporate institutional. You may be sending this to a real estate director who's on the other side of the country. So it really helps make his job a lot easier if he has this virtual information right at his fingertips and saves him a trip out to go see it. Yeah. How about anything on the video side? Do you find videography or aerial footage, drone stuff, or are, are, are things like that that important in the marketing aspects of these industrial projects today? They are with our development community. So a, a developer come and buy some land and they're going to build a speculative building, a speculative building meaning they're building it without, in it without a tenant in mind, but knowing that the demand is there and they can capture that demand. So they'll build this building on a speculative basis. And what they'll do is they'll, they'll hire or they'll take drone footage and show construction as it goes. In addition to that, they'll slap a camera on a pole. So now anybody that goes to their website can see the actual live footage of the building being built. Mm-hmm. So another great way to show the community, here's what we got. You can now see it's a real building. We're not saying we're going to build it. You can see the construction live <laughs> as it's going up. Right. Chad, George, as we begin to wrap up, I, I want to kind of open the Pandora's box here and hear from you both what you think is coming next in the industry, what we need to be aware of, and anything else that comes to mind as you're seeing it with your industry evolving. Well, we continue to be in a good part of an expanding market cycle. There's there's certainly some economic turmoil out there, but we largely feel pretty healthy. Chicago is a good bellwether for the national economy. So you know, we're not overly reliant on one particular industry. We're very diverse here. So uh, as well as with Chicago being such a, a key transportation network, a lot of these clients are really going to, they're, they're, they're drawn to the region. They're focused here. This is a major population center. So we continue to see that the fundamentals look really good for Chicago. We're coming off of a really record 2017 and 2016 and 2018. So the big picture may be slowing down a little bit, but we don't see any market crash or market recession. But we feel optimistic about going forward. We still see a lot of development. Vacancies are low and absorption and tenant demand is still relatively healthy for us. George, how about you? You know, the big thing I think of is our employees in the employee cycle and looking at them, especially with these fulfillment centers, they're going to become more automated. There are going to be less people involved in that, in that process. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I believe that's a good thing because that type of worker, they don't need a college degree or a skill set really to work in that environment. Because it's 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 manual labor, and I would love to see us going forward put more onus on how to retrain that workforce, because there are a lot of high-end manufacturers looking for quality candidates, and in today's environment, most of the high schools that are graduating kids who don't go to college, they end up doing these type of jobs, which really 
at the price point they can pay them is not life sustaining. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to see us going forward, think that through and get more technical school training because those jobs are are right now in high demand and they also pay a living wage. So I think going forward as we automate more, we need to retool our employment industry for that future. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I think that that brings everything full circle on the industrial side and cost of healthcare, cost of living, that long, that long-term, yeah, that long-term security for, uh, especially raising a family and and uh, and you know having a, a a nice way to live is, I think, extremely important for a lot of those a lot of those candidates in those in those positions. So, guys, we're wrapping up here. I I always like to ask this final question because you obviously both know a lot about this space, and it's it's fairly new to me. So, I, I again thank you for your time today. I always ask this. I'm curious who you feel like is doing groundbreaking or inspiring work that that you both look to in your in your daily lives. And Chris, uh, we have a good friend of the firm and uh, a guy we have partnered with. His name is Haven Allen. He's the executive director of M Hub. They are a incubator and workspace and and kind of digital manufacturing lab in downtown Chicago. And we have met with him about a year and a half ago on the podcast and picked his brain on, on a lot of kind of industrial technologies. He's got a great organization and, and somebody we have we've worked with as a JLL client. So he'd be a great guy to talk to Haven Allen at M Hub in Chicago. And the second person I'm gonna I'm gonna mention, his name is Ben Breslaw. He heads up the research for JLL worldwide. And I worked with him with Ben in a different life at another firm. And he is a true visionary, and he's really, when he got to JLL to head up the research department, he's really changed the landscape of who is thought of as the number one research group for real estate around the world. And he's really been the person that has driven that for JLL. And and he continues to push the envelope and continues to open up our eyes and ears to outside of just collecting data. So I, I, I really think he's another visionary in our industry. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Does anyone else come to mind for either of you? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's 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 pivot into what you two are up to and where where listeners can find you online because I know that there's there's a podcast, there's lots of fun stuff uh, in your world. So why don't you why don't you plug that before we before we wrap up? Yeah, we host JLL Chicago Industrial Real Time. We are on <laughs> Apple's iTunes uh, podcast app. We have a SoundCloud. For JLL Chicago Industrial Real Time, we are on JLL Chicago Twitter, and obviously we share this out to our LinkedIn network, and and all of our research reports can be downloaded off of our JLL research website. Right, go to JLL.com and you get our latest reports. We post everything that we produce from white papers to quarterly mark reports online at JLL.com. Fantastic, guys. I'm going to be linking all of this in the show notes. And once again, George and Chad, thanks so much for your time today. Chris, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Great opportunity. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at authenticff.com slash transforming cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us.